0: Let me encourage you to take your Bibles and open them to Isaiah 52. Today we will consider two chapters, both relatively short, 52 and 53. The ways of God are mysterious to us in more ways than we can count. In fact, the Bible says that. And we'll address that next week because we will consider Isaiah 55 next week. But two things, in spite of the mystery of God's work in our lives, two things stand out as eternally true. One, God's covenant promises to his people are forever and nothing can or will hinder their coming true. We just think about it. God makes promises and he keeps every last one of them. The second thing that is eternally true is that our sin is our greatest problem. Our sin is our greatest problem. If I could summarize, on the one hand, God is faithful, and on the other hand, we are not. We are not simply promise makers. We are promise breakers. So our sin is our greatest problem. It is a threat to our Relationship with God is a threat to our relationships with each other. In fact, uh, I tell young couples in my premarital counseling, an old, wise pastor years ago was asked, who had done hundreds of weddings, Dr. So and so, what is the greatest threat to marriage in our day? And his answer was, simply the same thing it's always been, and that's the selfishness of people. If it weren't for selfish men and selfish women marrying each other, there'd never be any problems in marriage. But alas, there are no non-selfish people. Every last one of us struggle. So our sin is our greatest threat to our relationship with one another. It's also a threat to our joy and peace why do we have so much turmoil why is there uh, a a great cloud of uncertainty or difficulty or hardship or at least dismay maybe even despair that follows so many people around the answer is our sin and then lastly I would say that our sin is a, a threat to the keeping of God's promises it seems, and we see this again and again in the scripture, it seems that man has no end of creativity, no end of ingenuity about ways to make it hard for God to keep his promises. In other words, God intends to bless, God prepares to bless, and then man jumps the fence. Man leaves the company of God and the following of God, the fellowship of God, and we keep creating new ways to become hard to love. In the passage of Scripture that we consider today, the people of God are in exile because of the second thing we just mentioned, and that is their own sin. The reason they're in the shape they're in is because they're in the shape they're in. They are sinners, and they have manifested that sin overtly and covertly for so long that God determined that the only antidote for that is exile. I want to say before we read it, this passage of Scripture, I've said to you already that there is no Old Testament book more quoted in the New Testament than the book of Isaiah. The fact that we don't know the book of Isaiah is an indictment of us. Having said that, Isaiah being the most quoted book in the New Testament, you might wonder what part of Isaiah is the most quoted part of Isaiah in the New Testament? And the answer is the two chapters we read today. 52 and 53 comprise the lion's share, the biggest portion of all of the Isaiah quotations in the New Testament. You will recognize these words. They are beautiful, and they are well-known. But before we read, I want to remind you that the exile that Israel and Judah find themselves in remind us, or if you will, point a finger at us as to the validity of these truths perhaps that are still true today. First of all, mankind left to itself will abandon God. We find that again and again throughout the Scripture, that mankind has no propensity nor any power to stay connected to God. M- mankind finds new ways to continue to abandon Him. Secondly, God hates it when His people abandon Him. He hates sin, and He must judge sin. Make no mistake, you cannot read the Old Testament and come away and say, God is ambivalent towards sin. God really doesn't care. He's kind of laissez-faire about things, and he just sort of goes along to get along. You can't read the Bible and believe that. In fact, when you read the Bible, you find that God hates that stuff, and he deals with it, and he deals with it forcefully, and he deals with it tragically, and he brings great sorrow upon his people because of their unwillingness to act like his people. Thirdly, we find that mankind is unable to fix its own root problem. Mankind, left to itself, abandons God, and mankind, left to itself, can't fix the fact that it consistently and constantly abandons God. Mankind doesn't have the solution to that. Invariably, we, we hear people today, sometimes political pundits, sometimes just worldly philosophers and sometimes just folks at the beauty shop saying what we really need to do is X well it's not to suggest that X is not a part of a solution it's not to suggest that mankind can't come up with a good idea uh, along the way but it is to suggest that the root problem is not going to be solved by X whatever X is the root problem Is that mankind is spiritually bankrupt until they are not and if our fundamental problem is a spiritual one and it is then the only solution to that is a spiritual solution so lastly I would say that because of his covenant we see here in chapter 52 and 53 that God will fix it himself Since we can't fix it, the good news, and I bring you great news today, the good news is that God has come to fix it himself. If you want it done right, you got to do it yourself. And in this case, we're not going to fix it. We can't fix it. We won't fix it. We don't fix it. Only God can fix it. So that brings us to this wonderful passage of Scripture beginning in chapter 52. We're going to read 52 and 53 together. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion, put on your beautiful garments. That means it's time to dress up. Dress up. I decided that I'm going to read that verse. I should wear a tie today. So I'm dressed up. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus saith the Lord, You were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. In other words, you are broke, and you're not going to have to pay For your deliverance for thus says the Lord God my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing now therefore what have I here declares the Lord seeing that my people are taken away for nothing their rulers wail declares the Lord and continually all the day my name is despised Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here am I. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. I, I just have to stop. I just can't read verse 10 without reminding you what that means. In the ancient world, men would wear long sleeves and flowing robes. But have you ever tried to work in that getup? You don't work in that get up. Have you ever tried to fight in a robe? No. No. If you're going to work and if you're going to fight, you take off those clothes, you lay them over the side. And a warrior goes to battle with his arms exposed. So when a man bears his arm, exposes his arm, this is about to get serious. It's about to go down right now. Verse 11 says, depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste, you shall not go in flight. For the Lord will go before you, the Lord God of Israel will be your rear guard. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance And his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told, them they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant make many be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities therefore i will divide him a portion with the many he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressions yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors if you're Any kind of Christian at all you will recognize those chapters if you've read the New Testament at all you will see that those chapters are fulfilled in only one person he is described in Isaiah not by name but by title we've seen two of the four this being the third Prior to today, two of the four chapters that deal with the man that is simply called the servant. God is going to send his servant to rescue his people. Ultimately, that servant is not a mere man, but a God-man. He is none other than the Lord Christ. And no man can fulfill the prophecy Spoken here in chapter 52 or 53, no mere man is qualified, and yet God will solve the problem of man nonetheless. So we have good news today. There are many things worth talking about. You know how I love to remind you that the Old Testament is used again and again as the Skeleton or the backbone of the New Testament. That, in fact, you can't understand the New Testament if you don't recognize the skeletal formation given to it by the Old Testament. The Old Testament gives meaning, or, or if you will, strength to the New Testament. And this is ground zero. These two chapters form the essential skeleton of the New Testament. These two chapters form the essential skeleton of the Bible, which means that these two chapters ought to be devoured and repeatedly returned to by God's people. I just want to make two points this morning, not because there aren't many more to make, but I just want to make two points that I think help us to apply these verses to our own lives. Notice in the first part of chapter 52, verses 1 to 12, we are called to rejoice that our God has not forgotten us. That our God has not forgotten us. Just notice the way the terminology jumps off the page at you. Verse 1, awake, awake. It's as if we're asleep and God comes in and shakes us and says, get up, get up, wake up. Notice in verse 2, shake yourself from the dust and arise. Remember, their their cots would have been rugs on the the ground. So they're sleeping on the ground on on material, fabric, if you will, a rug. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Notice in verse 4, he appeals to their awareness of God's past deliverances, or if you will, past times of oppression. First, in Egypt, and secondly, in Assyria. And he appeals to them and says, like that, God is going to rescue you. God is going to set you free. Notice in verse 7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet who bring good news, who publishes salvation and say to Zion, your God reigns. We live in a world that wants to deny God. We hear, if you will, voices. There there are cultural pressures again and again that suggest that your faith is silly. Your faith or confidence in God is of no consequence. And that you are simply duped by your experience or by your uh, training. You've been brainwashed. And increasingly, we have a culture that wants to divorce itself from God. But notice the witness of God in verse 7 your God reigns. He said, Well, where is God? Well, that's why we acknowledge his ways are mysterious. But to suggest that he, because you don't recognize him, or the world better, doesn't recognize him, denies his existence, or denies his love or affection for you, is Simply not true. Look at verse 9. Break forth together in singing. The Lord has redeemed his people. Notice in verse 10. The Lord has bared his holy arm. I've already expressed my joy in that phrase. The Lord has bared his holy arm. The Lord is dressing himself for battle. And he is coming. Thanks be to God. Verse 12. You shall not go out in haste you know who runs off in haste? People who are afraid, people who are, who are being pursued, people who are being chased, pe- people who, are, who, who have something to be afraid of. They're, they're running off. They're running out. They're scattering like quail. He says, you will not. When God delivers you, you will not run like quail. You shall not go out, <coughs> excuse me, in haste. God will go before us, and the Lord of God will go behind us. He will be our rear God. Let us rejoice that our God has not forgotten us. Now, he speaks these words to people who are in exile, people who are in the midst of sorrow, people who are in the midst of sadness, people who are in the midst of pain, people who are in the midst of struggle. So what is the message that the Lord would have us hear? And that is simply that our sorrow, our pain, our struggle, whatever it may be, and dare I say, every family, every family in this room, every family watching via live stream today, every family is confronted with pain, confronted with struggle, confronted with heartache, confronted with difficulty, confronted with sin and the effects of sin. The good news of this paragraph, of this section of Scripture, is that your pain is not forever forever. Because God intends to redeem you. God intends to collect you from that experience. He's going to rescue you. God has promised. We are people who hear His promises and believe His promises. Let me say that differently. We are people who have been taught out our lives that God is for us, and that God is at work. We've sung about it again this morning. God is at work, and His ways clearly are mysterious. And yet, we believe. The world says you're a fool to believe because if god were for you he would have already remedied that he would already change that he would already solve that he would already come to your aid why does your god who loves you leave you in the middle of that that's the way the world mocks god and christians find that kind of talk to be threatening and yet we nonetheless believe we nonetheless cling to the hope of God's Word that God who promised will keep his promises this is the nature of what it means to be a follower of God and to walk by faith we don't walk by sight we don't say look God has done this on my time Instead, by faith, we say God will do this on his time. And we believe God, we trust God, and we hope in God, and we cling to God no matter how difficult it is, no matter how hard it is, no matter what the effects of sin in our lives or in the lives of those whom we love, no matter the sorrow or suffering we contend with, we nonetheless say, as for me and my house, we believe, we trust We hope in God. And so the the message of Isaiah 52 is simply let us rejoice. Let us hear this good news. Let us celebrate the, the feet of these who bring glad tidings. And let us rejoice that our God has not forgotten us. That the promises made are going to be promises kept. Again, because we live some 2,500 years after Isaiah's time, We have the vantage point of looking back and to recognize this servant. We know this servant. We've seen this servant. We've seen him in the pages of Scripture, and we recognize the fulfillment of these verses in the person of Jesus Christ. And the message of Jesus Christ is that God will not let you stay In your heartache he will not let you stay in your misery he will not let you stay in your sorrow or your suffering instead God will come and one up your suffering you've suffered yes but you have never suffered like God has suffered for you let us rejoice that our God has not forgotten us there's a second thing that it seems to me that the scripture is saying to us, and that is that the, the Lord will send his servant to rescue us. He will be the one to bear our sin and to bear the punishment for our sin. As we mentioned beginning in chapter 52 and verse 13, some of the most beautiful verses in all the Bible important verses the Lord servant will bear our sin behold verse 13 my servant shall act wisely he shall do what is appropriate he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted as many were astonished at you his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind so shall he sprinkle many nations kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. I'm going to send my servant, and he's going to be brutalized. He's going to be crucified. He's going to be destroyed, if you will. And yet, he will still nevertheless be the, the substance of good news interesting this last section of chapter 52 verse 15 paul the apostle paul in romans 15 uses this phrase that which has not been told them they see that which they have not heard they understand to explain the missionary enterprise why are we doing what we're doing because we're fulfilling the prophecy of isaiah we're celebrating Jesus. We're talking of Jesus. We're bragging on Jesus. We're telling the world of Jesus because they've never heard of him. They've never seen him. But we've seen him and we know him and we love him and he loves us and we want them to know the one who loves them. So he uses this phrase at the end of chapter 52 to describe the missionary enterprise. The beginning of verse 15, he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shut their mouths because of him. The the New Testament uses that phrase to describe how God will take his message to the nations. Then the kings of the nations are not going to hinder God. It's not dependent upon whether or not they take a vote over there and decide whether or not Jesus should be celebrated. There are governments today where Christian people are celebrating Jesus against the government's wishes, because governments don't have a say about the authority of God. We will not be hindered by the work of man. God intends to sprinkle many nations so that at the great revelation victory party, One day there shall be people from every nation, every tongue, every tribe on planet earth at that party. God intends this for the glory of his son because of the sorrow that his son endured for us. There is none more worthy than Christ. None. And we see this plainly. Isaiah 52, 53 is used a couple of places in the New Testament. I want to show you this and illustrate how the Lord's servant has come to bear our sin. The first is in Acts chapter 8. You don't have to turn there. It's a very familiar passage. We'll put it on the screen for you. But this is the interaction between Philip, one of the first set aside in Acts chapter 6, the seven who were ordained uh, by the church, uh, set aside to serve widows. Philip is full of the Holy Spirit, and uh, it's Pentecost, and an Ethiopian eunuch is in his chariot headed home, and... Philip is on the road, and he sees this guy, and he comes by. They strike up a conversation. Philip says, what are you doing? What are you reading? He said, well, I'm reading from the scroll of Isaiah. And so he invited Philip to come in and explain it to him. So, verse 32, Acts 8, 32. Now, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep... He was led to the slaughter like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. That's Isaiah 53, 7. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? And Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they got down, and the the eunuch was baptized that very day. Isaiah 53, 7, a powerful reminder that the lord's servant will come and will take away our sin. There's another illustration in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 21. For to this and the antecedent for the pronoun this is suffering You've been called to suffering. So, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed Jesus quotes Isaiah 53 John quotes Isaiah 53 Matthew quotes Isaiah 53 Luke quotes Isaiah 53 in the gospel and in the book of Acts again and again Peter preaches Isaiah 53 and every conceivable letter of the New Testament has as its foundation the witness of Isaiah 53 if you don't know this chapter you are indeed Missing out, The Lord's servant has come to bear our sin. I do want to make an observation that I hope will be of strong encouragement to you. I uh, read an article recently and challenged me, and I thought I should pass it along when we got here. So I'm, this is a bit of a, of a, if you will, a parenthetical aside, but I think it's worth celebrating. I would point you, call your attention to verse 2. He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. Invariably, when you see pictures or dramatic presentations of Jesus, this is not the way he's portrayed In case you're unaware, there are are no photographs of Jesus. There are no paintings of Jesus. God was very careful, in my opinion. I think that's absolutely and totally deliberate on the part of God, not to retain any sort of physical image of Jesus. But several centuries later, artists have drawn pictures, portraits if you will, painted resemblances of Jesus, what they believed he looked like. And invariably Jesus is a, dare we say, a handsome man. Today if you look at any uh, movie or some sort of dramatic presentation involving Jesus, Jesus is maybe a little taller than the men around him. He looks a little more attractive, handsome, if you will. Square jaw. He looks like a rugged man. Looks like a good-looking man, even. Do you know that is not consistent with the Bible? It turns out Jesus is just an average-looking man. How do we know that? Because there's only one passage in the scripture that tells us what he looked like. And this is it. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. You know what that means? That means if you don't happen to be one of the beautiful people, (laughs) whoever that is, whatever that is, If you maybe came here with a bit of a a weakness, a bit of a lukewarm appearance, a bit of an average Joe kind of person, I want you to know it appears that you're more like Jesus than you ever imagined. You see, God didn't send... The tallest or the best-looking or the richest or the powerfully connected or anyone who had any sort of earthly allure or magnetism I'm pretty sure Jesus was winsome I'm pretty sure Jesus was articulate I'm pretty sure that Jesus was a normal man but maybe he's more normal than any of us ever imagined. It turns out that if you find yourself walking with a limp, you're more like Jesus than you ever imagined. He was despised and rejected. He was a man of sorrows. In other words, friend. If our Savior is a man of sorrows, why do we think we should not be? We are following him after all. Sorrows are customary for those who follow Christ. The Lord's servant is going to come and bear our sin. The heart, if you will, of Isaiah 53 are these three verses in the middle, 4, 5, and 6. I'll read them again and point you to how this fulfills our great need. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. A couple of things stand out. Number one, everything he experienced, he experienced because of us. The servant is not going to come to rescue the people of God, whether it is in the Old Testament or in the New Testament, because of any sort of failing on the part of the servant. The servant is not the problem. It's the people he's rescuing. There's a reason why we're in the shape we're in. It's us. We have brought this on ourselves. We have brought this tragedy upon us and the only rescue has to come from above the only solution or fix has to come from above ultimately our sin is not fundamentally against man though it clearly is but fundamentally our sin is against God and so even if we can be reconciled to one another and by the way we have no track record that suggests we can we're constantly fighting there are wars and rumors of wars all the live long day and just as soon as we think we have peace and folks are running around saying glory to to man because of peace somebody goes rogue and decides there will not be peace man has shown no propensity to even get along with himself much less with a holy god who's far more oppressive, by the way, who's far more exacting, who's far more requiring, who's far more holy, who's far more true, who's far more pure than any man. A man may give you a wink and a nod and say, hey, no big deal, move along, but God doesn't. Every failing of man against God must be reconciled. You are in, you're in overdraft, against God the books are not in your favor and yet God sends his servant and though he is not uh, accepted by man he is in fact rejected by man John 1 tells us that he came into his own and his own accepted him not his own rejected him even though he has come to his own and been rejected he is so because he is our everlasting substitute you'll see this plainly he has borne our griefs he carried our sorrows he was wounded for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities that upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace by his stripes we are healed he takes the punishment and we get the glory we get the forgiveness we get the reconciliation we get the for- the, if you will, the redemption. We get to go free because he does not. The Lord's servant has come and will come again to rescue us from the not only the penalty of sin, but even the presence of sin. We have turned astray, gone astray, and turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It is our sin that condemns Christ. It is our sin that brings about the need for this servant. It is our sin. This is the fulfillment of the Old Testament chapter that gives rise to it, Leviticus 16. You don't have to turn there. I'll just mention this passage uh, briefly. Leviticus 16 is the singular chapter in the Bible that discusses the Day of Atonement. In Leviticus 16 is the chapter that explains the use of two goats. One is sacrificed, and the blood is Poured out upon the altar. And then there's another goat. And the priest comes out of the Holy of Holies after this sacrificial rite with the first goat that's dead now. It's gone, dead. He comes out and he takes his hands and he puts them on the head of the goat. And he, if you will, transfers the guilt of Israel to this goat. William Tyndale was the first person to give that goat a name. He, he actually conjured up a word in English that did not exist before Tyndale came up with it in the 15th century. He called that goat the scapegoat. That word didn't exist until the 15th century. But Tyndale came up with that word. The priest puts his hands on that goat, and he sends that goat out into the wilderness. That goat lives with the guilt of Israel. And Israel lives without the penalty of their guilt, without the punishment of their guilt. So a goat dies, and then a goat is banished into the wilderness as a living lesson that you have to have someone pay your sin price. Somebody's got to write the books, somebody's got to change, if you will, the deficit that you have earned with God. And there's only one who can do that, and it is the servant of God of Isaiah 53. He has power to do this because he is the son of God. This is the fulfillment of all that God has ordained for us. The Lord's servant has come to set us free, to rescue us. He has come to bear our sin and to make us whole and right with God. I ask you today to consider your own walk with Christ. I would suggest that most of us know this information. We, Even if we can't quote Isaiah 53, we have heard these truths, most of us. But I would rather ask another question, not have you heard this, but what have you done with this? Have you placed your trust in the one who became Sin for you, who bore your sin, who takes away your guilt and to make you right before God. In the ancient context, 2,500 years ago in Isaiah's time, Israel is going to escape, but they're not going to escape with somebody chasing after them. They're going to escape because God is going to send a servant who's going to rescue them. In today's terms, we know that Jesus is the fulfillment of that. Let me show you one passage of Scripture as we close. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus has resurrected. Verse 13, two disciples are on their way to Emmaus, a neighboring town. That very day, verse 13, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near, went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation you're holding with each other as you walk? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? In modern parlance, would, we would say, did you just fall off the turnip truck? <laughs> and he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Where is that passage of scripture? That God is going to send send a redeemer. We had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. and Yet, besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said. But him they did not see. And he, that is Jesus, said to them, "Oh." foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken was it not necessary that the Christ the servant should suffer these things and enter into glory and beginning with Moses and all the prophets he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning themselves don't you wish you could have been with those guys and not be the unbelievers not be the ones who just got the tongue lashing from Jesus? Don't you wish you could have heard Jesus right there? Take the scroll of Isaiah and say, do you understand Isaiah 53? Do you understand when he talks about being wounded for you, pierced for you, dying for you, that that is the lot of the Messiah? That's the exact Behavior or, the, or experience of the Messiah. This had to happen this way. You would expect him to be crucified. You would expect him to be raised from the dead. You would expect him to show himself strong and powerful and holy and righteous and true. And I have good news for you. That's exactly what happened just as Moses and all the prophets said, that's what happened. There's one little thing that stands out here in verse 9, chapter 53. It's the only place in the Old Testament where the scripture says, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. And with a rich man in his death. The New Testament tells us that on the day that Jesus was crucified, as they came to the end of the day, the day was going to end at 6 p.m., they opted to take Jesus' body off of the cross and a secret disciple, named joseph a man from arimathea who the bible says was a rich man he took him and he buried him in a tomb that he had freshly dug out of the rock for himself so here's a man who has his own private mausoleum and he gives that tomb to jesus A little obscure truth like that. He is numbered with a rich man. Buried, as it were, with a rich man. Even that small dot of the I or crossing of the T is fulfilled in the story of Christ. All of which brings us to this point, friends. If you reject Jesus you not only reject Jesus against all of the evidence given in the Old Testament hundreds of years before they were actually accomplished, you basically are saying that prophecy does not impress you, which is the height of arrogance and unbelief. And secondly, if you reject Jesus, you also reject the only possible way you could possibly be made right with God because you cannot fix yourself you cannot solve this problem God alone must solve it and he has all that is required of you is for you to embrace it so I beg of you today Turn away from your sin. Turn away from yourself. Turn away from your own self-righteousness. And come and embrace the righteousness of Christ on your behalf. I assure you, friend, when I die, I'm going to heaven. But I'm not going because of anything I've ever done or will do or could ever do. Because there is an enormous deficit between me and God unless... God forgives my debt. This is the good news. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're here today without Christ, come to him. He will not turn you away. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for these precious words. Thank you for this precious chapter that foreshadows the coming of Christ. And uh, we thank you that as we read the New Testament, verse after verse and chapter after chapter details the fulfillment of these verses from Isaiah 52 and 3 in Jesus Christ. There is evidence on top of evidence on top of evidence just out of these two little chapters that prove to us that you are the great God that you say you are. You're the promise keeper. And you're the one who's going to save us and rescue us and redeem us and give us life eternal. I pray you would open the eyes of those who do not see. Tender the hearts of those who do not believe. And give us grace to trust you more. We love you so. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.